Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is Community Radio 3CR. Jan Bartlett with you for Tuesday Home Times just after 4 o'clock. Today, cancellation of a lecture by Western Saharan activist at Sydney University. I'll be speaking to Kamal Fidel from the Polisario Front for Western Sahara. Actions in support of Indigenous peoples in Luzon, the Philippines, and in Venezuela. Kevin Bracken will be telling us about those two. Geoethics Network segment with Bob Phelps. Visit to Iran and Afghanistan with Sarah Ball from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. More violence in West Papua, Ronnie Karini is the story, and a brief history of the Indigenous peoples of the Andes with Sasha Gillies-Lakakis. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when commentators are piddling themselves with excitement as they analyse with no bias whatever the 70th anniversary of the Chinese Revolution, the victory of the Chinese Communist Party, communism with Chinese characteristics. And our comment, the Chinese Communist Party 70 years later celebrates capitalism with Chinese characteristics. Last week we were struggling with nausea after hearing Big Supremo scuttle them more last son's obsequious bowing and scraping and bootlicking speech at the White House as he lived dangerously given the US of phobia we reported last week, the concern that the US of Capitalist Party, which controls every aspect of US of life, is having too much influence on true blue Aussie, may pose a security and economic threat. But the nauseating bootlicker scuttle them obviously thought scuttling off to the US of preferable to suffering these upstart mere children luring thousands and thousands of people onto the streets of true blue Aussie but sadly scuttle them couldn't escape the issue as children all over the world lured millions onto the streets so poor scuttle them was forced to give sage advice to these children a second sickening speech addressing addressing true blue Aussie children from the US of the US, of the UN of the world, and telling them it was uh, wrong to worry about the world that would be or might not be their futures, that they must look positively toward that future. Be positive, he gave them hope. After all, you probably won't always have a government that ignores the crap and doesn't give a stuff. So the highlight of Scuttlebeam's big week being fated was cardboard and plastic, because if you can't stop the millions marching, you can attempt to divert them, although I'm sure he'd like to wrap them in plastic and toss them into the polluted briny in a, an international version of Sydney shock jock Alan caught in the John's answer to former big supremo Julia Gorlinghard's out-of-control socialism. 
On the Donald and Scuttledem show and their ignorance, or sorry, ignoring of the UN of Climate Summit and millions marching because they know better, why risk the economy, the welfare of all of us on something so unproven, apart from the odd strange of becoming normal occurrence here and there? Well, again, how can satire compete? Speaking, presumably as Donald's lackey, Scuttledem warned evil without taking sides. Evil China, it must do more to cut its... Emissions, huh? <laughs> but thought we'd cut this in-depth analysis here and repeat the excitement and ultimate disappointment at the ground Saturday where the big game never got underway. All the controversy brought to us as usual by our wonderful caller Kevin and our brilliant expert commentator Michelle. Here's the action. A sensation over here. It's touch and go if the game ever gets started. It, it all starts. When the socialist captain, all being oozy, won the toss and asked his caring business class team opposing captain Moore Lashson which way he'd kick, and then said, we'll kick the same way. And that was after they both agreed each team would only use the right-hand half of the ground, and the umpires insist they have to kick in opposite directions. A, a sensation, Michelle. Very interesting, Kevin. It all started when the socialist captain, Mr. Albing Uzi, won the toss and asked his caring business class team opposing captain, Mr. Moore Lashson, which way he'd kick and then said, we'll kick the same way. And that was after both agreed each team would only use the right-hand half of the ground and the umpires insist they have to kick in opposite directions. Stunning analysis, Michelle stunning. If the stalemate isn't resolved, the caring business class team may be declared winner by default because the umpire appointed by Moore Lashson, an American with a very strange haircut called Trample the Paw, not his haircut of course, is running out of the centre and kicking goal after goal for the caring business class team. This could lead to a challenge from all being oozy, arguing both teams are kicking to that end. What, what's going on, Michelle? Very interesting, Kevin. If the stalemate isn't resolved, the caring business class team may be declared winner by default because the umpire appointed by Mr. Moore Lashson, an American with a very strange haircut called Mr. Trample the Poor, not his haircut, of course, is running out of the centre and kicking goal after goal for the caring business class team. This could lead to a challenge from Mr. Albing Uzi arguing both teams are kicking in that end. Brilliant, Michelle, brilliant. What, what a sensation. Look, we'll leave that replay there, but thanks to Kevin, and especially thanks to Michelle yet again for her deep expert insights. Sadly, the game never did get underway, all being oozy and the umpires each refusing to budge. And in that other big game, the artificial make-believe marketing opportunity team must be sorry it did get started, although for them it never did. And I'm sure 99% of neutral people must have been barracking not for a win, but for a loss. For the proof that it's a business, not a game artificial team to lose, and did they? All fears they just might win dissipating about a minute and a half into the second quarter and from then it was crack a bottle and enjoy the massacre. And isn't one of our very, very favourite caring employing class moguls, Tony Shepard the Prophets, such a happy man? Tony, of course, the big supremo of the artificial just for marketing team. And what a surprise. 
In an ABC interview on the eve of the massacre, Tony talked about the team not as a sporting entity, but in purely marketing terms. The financial benefits of handing his team millions of dollars. So this is not the week that was sport. This is the week that was business report. But every time we see Tony, he's laughing and oh so happy, even when we saw him, for instance, bent over in laughter, handing over yet another report to government on how to make the economy work better for all of us, mostly by smashing evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers, which we all know, because they tell us we know this is good for all of us. But then in that case, Tony probably was feeling exhilaratingly happy. There's no better feeling than smashing an evil union and a lazy, avaricious worker. <laughs> he laughed. And just to prove it is big business, yesterday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review devoted a double-page pictorial spread to the elite of the corporate world enjoying fine food and wine at the MCG and wonder how many of them left the tables of fine food and wine, um, the all-important networking, to watch any of the secondary reason for being there. Oh, and scuttle them, and all being oozy were there, being all oozy, mixing with the rich and powerful. So all being oozy didn't even make it onto the ground. He's shown in deep, meaningful discussion with Kim Williams, former head of Lord Rupert of Wapping's True Blue Aussie Empire, and among other important corporate roles now, a commissioner of AFL Propriety Limited. While the not-so-powerful who follow their team every week were down, at, down the road at Punt Road or at home by the telly because they couldn't get their hands on a ticket, let alone be fated with their social peers, but then we have to admire all those filthiest of the filthy rich in the banquet room for being prepared to queue up for hours and fork out their not-so-hard-earned to enjoy the business or, sorry, game they love. Uh, could you explain the rules to me, Tony? Uh, certainly, Charles, certainly. Unlike Tony, not happy, poor Boris in the horrors after the entire Supreme Court bench declared him illegal, 20 or so of them, and Boris declared in turn they were all wrong. Their honours had no idea what they were talking about, and poor Donald facing the biggest witch hunt ever, ever, a witch hunt in response to Donald's witch hunt. Ah, where's Arthur Miller when we need a playwright? We all know the law, of course, can't be retrospective. Well, we thought we knew. It seems this new Smash the Evil Unions Bill, which will make Tony even more happy, happy, Evil Unions Bill allowing pretty well anybody to demand a union be deregistered and union bosses sacked and dragging workers onto that stake at which witches were dispatched, can be retrospective, showing how evil unions and workers are so evil they must break or bend the law to preserve the rule of law. Past history can be put to justify deregistration, sacking and other sundry punishments for unlawful behaviour like demanding pay and conditions. No connection, but finally, Consumers True Blue Aussie, a choice magazine offshoot, reckons thousands of workers are being ripped off by underperforming super funds and lists the bottom quartile in which a whopping four of the 21, four of the 21, are industry funds and a mere, mere 17 retail and corporate funds, clearly indicating why the government is so anxious to get rid of the industry funds and allow the successful retail and corporate funds to control all that lovely, lovely money. 
but but if the industry funds are doing so well, why get rid of unions and workers controlling workers' money? We, well, I asked naively, because the evil union funds are distorting the market. We must have a level playing field which is fair to all. Uh, all who? Our only concern is the workers' interests. Well, we all know that. They didn't need to say it. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. Following a successful visit to Victoria, speaking with support groups and also a wider audience of human rights and law activists about the situation of her people under Moroccan occupation and the decades-long quest for a referendum to determine their future, Western Sahara human rights activist and health professional Tekba Ahmed Salah returned to Sydney prior to spending a month in New Zealand. One of the engagements in Sydney, a sold-out event scheduled for the 25th of September at the Law School on the legal, political and human rights aspects of the Western Saharan situation, was unilaterally cancelled by the university less than a fortnight before it was due to be hosted and without explanation of informing the organisers. One of the organisers of the event was Kamal Fidel, the Australian and New Zealand representative of the Polisario Front, the liberation movement for Western Sahara. When we spoke at the weekend, I asked Kamal how he found out the event had been cancelled. Well, first of all, uh, we heard it from friends who registered to attend the event uh, through Eventbrite, and he received uh, an email informing him that uh, the event was cancelled, and he called us and let us know. Well, at first uh, thought it's, it's a mistake or a joke or, you know, something. Uh, I, I, I couldn't uh, think that the university would have counseled without letting us know or without uh, consulting with us uh, before that. What did you do then? Well, I called the university and uh, the person who was, uh, you know, uh, involved with us for a long while, uh, working closely with us to prepare for the event, in the sense that, you know, about uh, the themes and about, you know, the publicity. And uh, it's been in the making for around three months. Um, when I called him, he said, uh, you know, I'm busy. I will, someone will get in touch with you. I asked specifically, is the event cancelled? He said, uh, uh, I'm not in charge of the, this matter anymore. Someone will get in touch with you and let you know. Then I sent an email uh, to a group of people who, from the university who were involved in the organization of the event, and then I received an email back confirming that the event was uh, indeed cancelled. And when were you actually told the reasons why that they were cancelling? Following that, uh, we received a few emails uh, stating different reasons uh, every time and then uh, I responded to, to those emails uh, for example they stated that 
they cancelled because uh, there was uh, a similar event at a different department earlier in September and that they thought maybe those two events were similar and if they didn't cancel the, you know, the event at the law faculty, the university might be seen to be taking a position on the issue or that it might be seen as not, you know, the departments are not co- coordinating between themselves. But then I replied that um, the first event was uh, on a different subject related to Western Sahara. Speakers were different. Uh, the venue was different. And the uh, the dates were different. And it, each event was targeted to a specific audience because the first event was held at the Department of Peace and Conflict Studies and the second event was uh, going to be held at the law faculty and the students were promised to get, uh, you know, credit uh, points for uh, their studies and also uh, it was targeted at legal practitioners because the, the main theme was the legal uh, aspects of the issue of Western Sahara uh, and uh, unlike the previous event which dealt with mainly humanitarian aspects of the issue. But I asked also in, in one of my emails whether whether the uh, the university will let us know uh, who took the decision and whether they received any letter from the Moroccan embassy, they didn't respond specifically to those questions. What made you suspect that they had gotten a letter from the Moroccan embassy? <laughs> because this is the modus operandi of the Moroccan embassy, uh, and I knew for a fact that the... Department of Peace and Conflict Studies had already received uh, a letter from the Moroccan Embassy, and I had a, you know, um, I thought that they would have also sent a letter to the law faculty, and that could have played a role in the cancellation. And I was right because the uh, the university has confirmed that uh, after that that the they did indeed receive a letter from the Moroccan embassy on this issue. But they didn't actually say that that was the reason why that they cancelled. They weren't going to say that. They haven't admitted that, but um, when you read the Moroccan embassy letter, it tacitly asks for the, uh, you know, cancellation or what they call balance of views or something like that. So... Uh, I don't think if the university hadn't received a, a letter from the Moroccan embassy that they would have taken the serious decision of cancelling an event. And the question which remains unanswered is what harm would have happened if the university let the event take place? It was very, there was a, a, a good response and some even state that the event was sold out, and the, the only thing that could have happened is that the students and the staff of the university and the public in general would have benefited from learning more about the issue of Western Sahara, and no harm would have happened. So it is really strange why they took that strong decision to cancel an event 
so soon after it, uh, before it was, it would have taken place. Have you run into opposition like this from the Moroccan embassy? It's uh, it's very common. We always uh, face uh, these kind of uh, difficulties, if you want to call them that, because um, the Moroccan embassy usually sends a staff member to every event we we, we organize, and they also uh, encourage uh, and ask Moroccan citizens living in Australia to attend and even, you know, suggest questions for them to ask during these events. But we always welcome debate. We, we, we don't hide from it if it's based on facts and arguments, and we don't mind that as long as they don't interrupt or threaten or, you know, cause uh, difficulties. That is fine. We, we have no problem at all debating the Moroccans and talking to them and explaining our issues. In fact, you know, we have had meetings even with the King of Morocco and also we regularly have meetings with the Moroccan officials in negotiations under the United Nations auspices, which uh, are taking place uh, at the moment. Have you had conversations with representatives of the law school at Sydney University to gauge their thoughts on the matter? Well, I've tried, but um, they haven't really... No one has called me to speak about it, and uh, no good expression has been given. Uh, on, the, on, on the other hand, the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sydney has written an, uh, an official letter to the Moroccan Embassy explaining why they cancelled the event in response to the Moroccan ambassador letter. But we haven't received the same treatment or respect or consideration from the university, which is really surprising. Not really happy about that. We should be treated on on the same level uh, as the Moroccan embassy. What's been the reaction of academics at the university? I think there there is a, a sense of surprise and outrage, uh, and, uh, uh, and this was reflected in the fact that we held the same event at UTS on the same day and the same date that uh, the first event was supposed to take place at the uh, University of Sydney, and we received uh, tremendous support, and um, it was um, very well attended, standing only and, um, and and that was a message to the University of Sydney and to the Moroccans that they cannot, you know, curb uh, the freedom of speech, uh, which is a, an important principle in, 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 in Australia, and people really value it a lot, and they wouldn't uh, uh, accept it to be affected. Uh, and particularly people don't like to see foreign influence dictating what uh, universities in Australia should be doing uh, and um, what Australians should hear or not hear uh, and what issues should be raised or not because uh, this is a very serious matter. Uh, if uh, any embassy in Canberra thinks that it has the right to 
to dictate or to say what sh- should be done in Australia. Uh, this is an interference in the internal affairs of a sovereign state uh, and of the public right to hear and assess for themselves what is right and what is wrong. Moroccans, uh, Moroccan officials are, uh, I think, very welcome everywhere to organize events, to talk about their issues or about Western Sahara, but they should not be afraid of uh, this issue being raised here. This indicates that they have something to hide and they don't like, uh, you know, facts to be raised. Tekpa had a very successful visit to Australia? She did, uh, and we're very happy and delighted uh, uh, that uh, this tour has taken place and so many events have been held in, in Sydney and Melbourne and Canberra. So many people have expressed sympathy and solidarity uh, and uh, the Australian Sahara Association have done a tremendous job uh, in organizing this tour uh, and we are very grateful for their efforts and uh, the solidarity they have shown along so many years. We are also very delighted about the official Australian position on the issue, which is in line with the United Nations uh, resolutions and uh, efforts and peace plan. And they would like to see a referendum organized as soon as possible, which we, we would like to see too. Uh, and we have also had very positive meetings with many members of parliament from uh, all political parties uh, and I think the issue uh, is now uh, more known uh, in Australia and uh, this is also thanks to Tekber's uh, efforts uh, and dedication to the issue. Uh, so all in all it's been a fantastic tour and uh, we are very happy about it. And next is a time in New Zealand, and I'd imagine one of the the main issues being brought up there or being talked about will be the import of phosphate, which is Western Saharan phosphate. Yes, that will be one of the issues, um, because New Zealand is uh, the only Western country still involved in this issue after so many others, other companies um, from... Australia, Canada, United States, and others have stopped importing phosphates from Western Sahara through Morocco, which is considered uh, in the eyes of international law as an illegal act, a theft of a resource which does not belong to Morocco. And unfortunately, two New Zealand companies are still intransigent and adamant that they would like to, they want to continue to do this uh, illegal act. Because of greed and selfishness and uh, arrogance not to, you know, accept that that what they are doing is wrong and is illegal and is immoral and ethical and is affecting the lives of innocent people in Western Sahara. Uh, And they've been doing this for decades now. And enough is enough got away with this theft for over 20 years uh, and it is time they stopped. We will stop them, you know, either through arguments or through legal action.
which we are considering at the moment in, in New Zealand. So it's better for them to find an alternative soon. And where are the negotiations for a referendum? Are they any closer? This is a, a very big issue and serious one, which the United Nations uh, and the international community has to redouble their efforts. 28 years of waiting for a mere referendum, spending so much money on it, on the preparations, on the United Nations mission in Western Sahara. It's a referendum that has been promised to us. Morocco signed on to it uh, and agreed to it. It's, you know, the United Nations Security Council resolutions are very clear that the referendum should be organized. There is nothing to stop this referendum from being organized. In fact, the United Nations has made a lot of preparations in terms of preparing the lists of voters, having a mission on the ground, even having the ballot boxes ready. But Morocco obstructs and defies the international community, violates the peace plan, violates United Nations resolutions, abuses human rights, illegally plunders our resources. And no one is doing anything because of the fear of France using its veto at the Security Council. So the international community has a, a test here to overcome. Will they go with international legality and organize a referendum? Or will they allow France and Morocco to violate international law and United Nations resolutions and get away with it? This will create a very dangerous precedent for any other power to do the same. And this should not be the case. This is not what the United Nations was founded to do. The Charter is very clear that aggression uh, is not allowed. Violation of international law is not allowed. Violation of human rights is not allowed. The right to self-determination is a number one principle in the Charter of the United Nations. So it's not in our hands. It's in the hands of the international community and of the United Nations. And the, and the ball is in their court. Thank you so much. Okay. And many thanks to Kamal Fidel, who's the Polisario Front representative from Western Sahara to Australia and to the general area as well. It's coming up to 4.30 on Melbourne Community Radio 3CR. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. Well done indeed. Next to Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. On the line now is activist and trade unionist Kevin Bracken. And a month or so ago, Kevin, we spoke about a blockade at the Oceana Gold Mine at the Dipio in northern Luzon in the Philippines. What's the latest on that barricade? Well, the latest is the blockade still holds up and effectively Oceana Gold's tried to have the um, blockade taken away by an interim order. They were unsuccessful in it. People's blockade still stands up. But there has been another development, and that is an 
It was it appeared in the Philippine Star on the 25th of September. It's a newspaper over there at the uh, Mines and Geoscience Bureau recommended an interim renewal of their 25-year mining licence. Their mining licence was sent back from the Office of the Prison because they never had the free and prior informed consent of the Indigenous people who lived there. They had got another tribe to sign it, to sign it which didn't actually cover their area. And what's happened now is that they've put their application in and now the people who did sign it have put an application in to claim the area that does include the mine. So it's about the sowing dissent, you know, between the people who live in the area, and that's what these mining companies do. And they've got the um, Mines and Geoscience Department and the um, Minerals and Natural Energy Resources actually working on behalf of the company when the application for their renewal was incomplete and wasn't wasn't correct. So what they've said is that if we give them a renewal, it'll take the um, process two years to go through and that'll be enough to give funding for the uh, mine to keep going another 25 years. So you've got the, the Department of the Government acting as a cheerleader for these corporations. Can I spend a couple of minutes reading to you off Oceana Gold's webpage? DiDipio is a high-grade underground gold and copper mine located on the island of Luzon in the Philippines. Oceana Gold acquired DiDipio in 2006 through a merger with Climax Mining Limited and commenced commercial production of the open pit mine in 2013. The Didipio mine delivers significant socio-economic benefits to the people in the neighbouring communities, directly employs over 1,500 workers, of whom 97% are Philippine nationals and 59% from local communities. It provides several thousand of additional livelihood opportunities and indirect jobs through partnerships with cooperatives and social development organisations. And it goes on, it sounds like paradise for the people. Well, if it was paradise, there wouldn't be people blockading the mine from operating, would it? And that's what happened. They actually started operating in 2012, and there was a couple of people murdered at the time. Also, people have been forcefully evicted from their homes. And there's about 10 breaches of the um, of Philippines laws that the company has, has made. But you, you won't read that on their, uh, on their company website. And it's very difficult now for people from overseas to come in and support the people there within this government. That's right. Well, Duterte doesn't tolerate any opposition to his own government. And his war on drugs has claimed about 31,000 lives. And when I've spoke to people through, from the Philippines, they don't know of any drug, big drug dealers who have been killed, but they've just about all been poor people or people who oppose anything that the government does or the big corporations do. But foreigners aren't allowed in now? Or a lot of foreigners aren't allowed in now? <laughs> You've got a few dangerous people like um, Sister Pat Fox, who'd been there for 27 years working with the poor people over there. And when she took part in a, um, a fact-finding mission in Mindanao, her um, visa was taken away and she was deported out of the country. And you've got other people like Len Cooper, Peter Murphy. I think they've been barred from going back to the Philippines as well. Now, none of them are terrorists. They're actually trying to actually help poor people over in that country. Now, there is a, another demonstration. The demonstration used to be about getting them out of um, El Salvador. That's successful. Now the demonstration's outside there head office in Collins Street, Melbourne, is to get them out of the Philippines. When's the next one? The next one's the 14th 
of October, and it's a Monday. This one's, they've always been on a Friday, but this one's on a Monday. And the reason for that is when they um, tried to sue the government of El Salvador, the um, Exit Tribunal, International uh, Settlements of International Dispute, that's the day that they came to handed down the decision against Oceana Gold. It was the 14th of October, and I think it was the 40th anniversary of the Exit Tribunal when it started. So it's not only in Australia, but it's also in Canada, the USA, El Salvador and the Philippines. There'll be actions taking place on the 14th of October, and that's why we've made ours to coincide with that on the 14th of October at 12 o'clock at 357 Collins Street, Melbourne. So we, and we supported the people of um, El Salvador when this company was trying to sue the government for $300 million. And we're supporting the people in the Vale of Vizcaya who don't want the mine to operate and we're supporting their blockade. And this week there's also a fundraiser? Yeah, well, what's well, another issue, but it is all related, and that's for um, the people of Venezuela. That's on this Friday, uh, this Thursday night, or Thursday evening at 6.30 at the MUA Rooms in Island Street, West Melbourne. And that's to um, help the people of, of Venezuela, because the US is carrying out economic warfare on them now. They've got $57,000 million that belongs to Venezuela in the banking system that Venezuela can't utilise. So they can't buy medicines, they can't buy equipment to keep you know, machinery going, they can't buy food because they've been effectively cut out of international banking. I think there's $1.47 billion worth of gold in the Bank of England that they won't release. We had a delegation going over there in January and they came back with a list of goods and we've got a couple of fundraisers and film nights which has raised a bit of money for them when we were trying to raise a bit more because we're going to get a container and send it over. And the items there are is electric water pumps, electric generators, water for purification units, school supplies and implements for recreation like paper, notebooks, pencils, crayons, rubbers, soccer balls, basketballs. They're after farm tools like six machetes, shovels, picks, canned food for different size clothing and things, radios, domestic, or uh, band radios, cell phones, computers, printers, modems, also cables, globes, switches, water storage units, outboard motors, surgical equipment, like paediatric medicines, antibiotics for adults, anti-inflammatories, painkillers, fever control, antihistamines, anticonvulsants, thermometers, so the list goes on. But no one is going to be um, held with the charge of the affairs from Venezuela, Daniel Gasparri, will be there to tell us the um, latest situation there. And there have been developments in uh, Venezuela. There have been talks going on with the opposition leader, the four largest opposition parties, and they've agreed to go back in, in the National Assembly and try and get the country running and try and lift the blockade. Uh, Juan Guaido was sort of right out there on a limb on his own, but unfortunately our government recognises him as the president of Venezuela. Could I just say too that uh, the Victorian Trades All Council at their last executive meeting passed a resolution condemning the blockade on Venezuela, so it's a great thing. I think it's the first uh, trade union, it's the first body I know of in Australia to condemn the sanctions. And it's, we're not hearing any opposition from this in the Australian Parliament at all, which is very disappointing. I think we're the only country in Asia that recognises one right over the rightful ruler of Venezuela. Yeah, it's disgusting that a country has been reduced to asking for basic, basic things to keep the people alive when. It's it's the fault of sanctions brought on by another country, and then they say, "Well, look, the country's failing. The, the, you know, the government's corrupt. Whatever." Not acknowledging the main problem 
is the sanctions? Actually, economic warfare being carried on by the, by the US government. And I suppose people say, what are you talking about you know, mining in the Philippines and what's that got to do with sanctions on Venezuela? It's because of the corporate, corporate empire which is running the world now from the US. It's not being run for the benefit of the US people. You know, they're being done over too, and we're being done over. We're being treated like a vassal state of the USA. I think of all the... Um, our four major banks, the big four Australian banks, are over 60% owned by US shareholders. So I was just reading a, a report by um, of an academic, Clinton Fernandez, who's a professor of international law and political studies at the University of New South Wales, which says about the largest 20 companies in the year. And when, the, when we talk about that, the largest banks are all owned by over 60% by US investors. BHP is over 73% owned by US investors. So the the, corp- US, the, multi- the corporations in the world are actually run on calling the shots now and dictate the governments what to do. And what they've got to back it up is the US military. That's been used against Venezuela. It's been used in, the, in um, the Philippines. They've got an all-out renewal where they were having peace talks with you know, the New People's Party, New People's Army in um, the Philippines for like 10 years. And Duterte said he was going to continue on with them. Now they've just stopped all peace talks and they've got all-out warfare, which just mimics the um, anti-insurgency that the US has carried out in Vietnam, in El Salvador, in Iraq, has been carried out in the Philippines now. And it's all to do that we're no longer, you know, employees or we're becoming servants of the corporate empire. And then you've only got to go and see Morrison grovelling to the US a couple of weeks ago. It's embarrassing, isn't it? I think it's more than embarrassing. I can't think of the right word on air. Unfortunately, we get we um, get who we, who we um, deserve, and unfortunately, enough people aren't speaking about what is actually going on here. We're getting 36 pages of the footy in the you know, the Herald Sun, which is great. It's great to see Richmond win it, but what's really happening here is just tucked away and not even reported on at all in the newspaper here, and that's you know selling out our our country to a few. Fewer and fewer people have got more and more power all the time too and are dictating to all the rest of us what, what sort of lives we're going to have. Okay, Kevin, let's finish by you giving the details once again of the two, well, one's a demonstration and one's a meeting. Yeah, well, the uh, meeting, which is going to be few, some short films and things and also people will be able to ask questions of uh, Daniel Gaspari, is this Thursday night. It's a fundraiser for, Venez- for the people of Venezuela to overcome the economic warfare that's being conducted against their country now by the US and their allies, including Australia. And that's at 6.30 this Thursday, the 3rd of October, at the MUA Rooms, 45 Island Street, West Melbourne. We'd like to also for people to support the people of Nevada Vizcaya on the 14th of October at 12 o'clock at 357 Collins Street, Melbourne, at the offices of Oceana Gold. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks very much, Jan. Well, he said that straight. Of course, it wasn't Bob Phelps. It was Kevin Bracken from the MUA activist extraordinaire and those details again is this Thursday at the MUA at 6.30 and Monday week outside 357 Collins Street at 12 o'clock to push for Oceana Gold out of the Philippines. Now let's go to Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Tasmania right-wing government, but they're doing the right thing. Yes, well, there was uh, no dissent at all from their decision just last week 
to um, extend their ban on genetically manipulated crops and animals and microorganisms in Tasmania until 2029. Normally the uh, sunset is five years, but they gave it ten, although the Greens did move for a permanent ban uh, and that wasn't accepted. It's going to be reviewed in 2029, but that's still a wonderful decision and is very much in contrast with what the South Australians are doing. What's in the water down in Tassie that's, that's leading them up the right way? The states have um, control over the marketing of their food and other products and uh, Tasmania sees it as a real benefit to be GM-free. Uh, they've got uh, premium markets in Australia and around the world for their clean green and uh, high-value products. So why would you give that up for really nothing? Um, at the moment, genetic manipulation offers to agriculture or to anybody else and shoppers don't want to buy and eat genetically manipulated foods so uh, the Tasmanians are grabbing the opportunity and running with it and of course they're also opposing the federal moves to deregulate a lot of genetic manipulation techniques because uh, with that deregulation it's going to become even more difficult for the, for the states and territories to keep what will essentially be secret genetic engineering uh, out of their own uh, production uh, systems and food supplies. What are the major industries in agriculture in Tasmania? Well, there's dairy, of course, um, which has shrunk. Um, Bellamy's saying now that they're getting most of their milk from elsewhere. Of course, there's the poppy industry, which is big. They're producing something like a third of all the alkaloids for um, medicines, uh, around the world, then their wine industry is going very well as well, and aquaculture is the other thing, of course, uh, that's quite contested, but is, um, is large, growing out the salmon. So they would be uh, big agricultural activities in Tasmania at the moment, and they think that keeping them GM-free is um, pretty critical for their success. What's happening in South Australia? That's not quite so good, is it? Well, no, the government there has um, been foolishly led into the idea that um, genetically manipulated canola could actually deliver benefits to the state. They're being offered, of course, uh, all the promises, the sort of false promises we've seen over the last 30 years are being renewed with the new CRISPR technologies coming on track. But the South Australian government is moving to allow Kangaroo Island to, to remain GM-free, but to allow genetically manipulated canola that can be sprayed more often at higher doses with Roundup herbicide uh, into the rest of the state. It's a really foolish decision because uh, canola only represents 2% of their uh, agricultural production and yet for that small wedge they're going to uh, risk the reputation of all of their other products as well. And the reason that they're leaving Kangaroo Island to be GM-free is that the island is getting substantial premiums for its GM-free products, particularly into Japan. So we're saying to the government there, why, for heaven's sake, wouldn't you do for the rest of the state what Kangaroo Island has been able to do for itself and capture the benefits of having a high reputation in any market around the world for your GM-free products? It's ideology again. Um, the previous Labor government kept the um, GM-free ban in place from 2003 until the last election uh, earlier this year. 
and now the um, the Liberals want to tip it over, you know, flexing their muscles and saying, here, we can do this, even though the uh, group of farmers who are supporting this is very, very small indeed. The previous minister was lobbied very heavily, and uh, his assessment was that only something like 200 farmers out of the 5,000 in South Australia actually supported the lifting of the GM ban. So uh, this government is just acting on instinct rather than any good evidence. So there's lots of pressure on this South Australian government then? Well, yes, uh, and uh, you're hearing silly things as well, like they're now saying, oh, with climate change, we're going to be able to, to grow genetically manipulated cotton in South Australia. Well, cotton is grown, of course, in southern Queensland and northern New South Wales, and they think that they're going to be able to grow it as well in South Australia. It's a very uh, water-hungry crop, of course. The country, the whole country, is in dire straits with the drought, uh, the Murray-Darling is a catastrophe, and yet they would now say to us, oh, we can grow with climate change, South Australia is going to become suitable for genetically manipulated cotton, and we can take a large amount of water out of the river to grow cotton here in South Australia, and that's going to be a bonanza. It's just cloud cuckoo land, really, but those are the kinds of silly arguments that, that are being run by the government and others to get rid of their GM-free status. It makes no sense at all, and we're still giving them a good run for their money. What's the sense in the argument that the dry continent's going to suddenly become less dry because of climate change? I don't know if it's even as sophisticated as that. I just think that they should look around themselves. Hemp, for instance, which is starting up, has a low demand for water, is a very valuable crop. It's a new innovation in agriculture. It's a crop that they could very well grow in South Australia and do very well out of. But, I don't know, like a lot of states, I guess, uh, South Australia is run by city people. Listening to the agricultural community is not uh, something that they're really great at. And I just think they should listen up, get a bit of sense, and continue the uh, GM-free moratorium there. Because what we see in the other states is that in WA, the, um, the premium for GM-free canola last week was um, around $85 a tonne. The amount being grown, both in Western Australia, Victoria and New South Wales, is actually go going south. Farmers have tried out the mode of production where they can spray everything with Roundup and not harm the crop, not working out financially or from an ecological point of view. I'd say a maximum of 15% of the crop will be GM this year, down from a high of 30 two or three years ago. The farmers themselves are losing interest in it, and I don't see why South Australia would come in at this late stage and uh, pick up what is essentially a failure. The agricultural production in South Australia is pretty small as a whole, and I just, for the life of me, can't see it. For instance, the lucerne seed growers who are a substantial industry in the northern part of the state and around the border with Victoria are required to remain GM-free because they sell into the USA and into the Middle East where the rules say the lucerne seed has got to be GM-free. They're getting premiums for their product as well and yet they've been sitting on their hands, they're divided and wouldn't go to bat for keeping the state GM-free. So the rural community... I don't know, it's schizophrenic. <laughs>
And I just don't get it really, uh, why aquaculture, for instance, just in the last day or two, is saying we're not against uh, GM either. Maybe they're thinking that they might one day, one of these days get um, the genetically manipulated salmon from Canada. But meanwhile, of course, our environment, going to pot, need to get a bit smarter if they're going to remain in business. I see that the numbers of farmers in Australia has also sharply declined. Something like five years ago, there were 120,000 farmers in Australia. On last report last week, down to 80,000. That's a loss of a third of Australia's farmers. And what we're getting instead is agribusiness, which is the failed industrial model of food production, not feeding Australians, but producing commodities, grains, oil seeds, and uh, animals for export overseas, not to feed Australians, just to feed the budget. Uh, Bridget McKenzie, the agriculture minister, the gun-toting woman from northern Victoria, out there saying, oh, our agriculture is going to be worth $100 billion by 2030. That's a doubling. Cloud cuckoo land stuff on the driest continent on Earth, uh, which is in strife. People are in fantasy land. We need a bit more grounding. There are other models of regenerative agriculture that will take care of the water, the soil, start to build a different model of food and fibre production for Australia for the future and for future generations because at the moment we're not serving those future generations who are now standing up and saying no to climate change, having these huge rallies everywhere around the world. This should be one of their concerns too that if we continue as we are, may not be fed and genetic manipulation which is being held out as the great rescuer of the world's food supply is simply an empty vessel, a failed experiment and we need to move on to those regenerative eco-agricultural systems that are under development but need some proper resourcing. Surely there must be some farmers, some smaller farmers who are actually doing it at the moment in South Australia to thumb their nose at the government. Well, there are, but I think that um, the industrial people who are buying up land left, right and centre and making these huge aggregations, people like Gina Reinhardt, who's now hugely into agriculture, for instance, are on the wrong track. The nation is on the wrong track. We've got hundreds of thousands of people in Australia now who are food insecure, relying on Second Bite and Food Bank and others to feed them. We ought to take these warning signs and start thinking about how we're going to cater for people in the future because um, the current system is badly flawed, is not working, is failing us from many, many perspectives and yet you've got uh, people like Grains Research and Development Corporation, for instance, which has got a budget in excess of $100 million a year, still pouring those research and development resources into the old model, the failed model, the input-based model where you're dependent on dwindling oil supplies, dwindling phosphate supplies, monopolised seed, fertilisers, chemicals and other inputs which are only going to get more expensive and make farmers more marginal than they are now. We just need a, a thorough rethink from top to bottom. But instead of that, government is deregulating all over the place. It wants to deregulate genetic manipulation. But it's also having, again, the fifth review of the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, which since Gillard, I think there have been five reviews, 
each one comes up saying, you know, everything's A-OK, we're not poisoning the environment or poisoning people, the system of regulation is working well. When we've got toxics out there, we know Roundup, for instance, which has now been disclosed as a, a carcinogen, but many, many other toxics as well that have been registered for 50 years without ever being reviewed. All they'll review is the rules and basically keep them the same as they are, except that they will be made even more user-friendly for Bayer, the new company Corteva, which is Dow and DuPont getting together, ChemChina, which bought Syngenta last year and is now a huge uh, company, BASF, these companies, only five of them now, own uh, and control something like 70% of the global chemical industry and also the seed industry. Our farmers are being squeezed. The companies are getting the edge even more than they had before. And our regulators are rolling over. Parties are being paid megabucks by CropLife Australia to do the bidding of the agrochemical and seed industries. Not in the public interest. Just wondering, Bob, what's happening in New Zealand on all these issues? That's unfortunate. This um, push to deregulate the new genetic manipulation techniques is actually a global push. Trump, for instance, has told the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture that they should be um, finding ways to deregulate GM in North America. Boris Johnson, in his first week of being the Prime Minister of the UK, made three speeches in which he advocated for the deregulation of genetic manipulation in uh, crops and the food supply as well. And now in New Zealand and Japan, we've got pressure on governments as well. Japan is already moving ahead and it looks like it's going to deregulate as well. And in New Zealand, the heat has just been turned up by the um, Farmers Federation there to try to say, oh, well, we've been too tough on genetic manipulation until now and we'd better loosen the constraints and start deregulating. And this, of course, is all about markets because people like China and some of the other big users of foodstuffs, um, India, for instance, are saying that they won't be um, deregulating any time soon if we want to keep selling into those markets, we're going to be able to have to say our product is GM-free. So we'd better wise up before it's too late. Is there also a push to irradiate food? Well, that's going rather more quietly. You know, um, around the world, governments and industry are um, promoting their irradiation of food products as a way of sterilising, extending shelf life so that foods that are quite old can be still looking good enough to be sold in, into the marketplace around the world. It's the use of uh, radiation technologies that is just creeping along quietly in the background. Uh, however, we did get a good result on irradiation labelling in Australia. At the moment, the situation still is, even though it came under challenge uh, in 2017, that any irradiated food in Australia will still require a label. But in this deregulatory climate, we can imagine that if any large amount of irradiated food wanted to start arriving, then I could see Food Standards Australia New Zealand also having another review with the idea of taking the labelling requirements off as well if we're not too careful. We know, for instance, 
that while the main regulator, the Office of Gene Technology Regulator, is wanting to deregulate many of the new GM techniques, Food Standards Australia New Zealand will very probably follow straight behind and say, OK, we don't have to regulate those anymore because they've been deregulated in farming. Why would we regulate them in the food supply and require them to be labelled? And so the regulators are hand in hand. This government, the Scott Morrison government, uh, is in a very deregulatory mood. I think that uh, in the long run, the public reap the whirlwind of uh, very bad policy decisions. Let's talk about local action against Roundup and people doing a proper thing and getting out and making sure that their suburbs are safe. Depends on local activists getting up on their hind legs and making quite a bit of noise, but it actually does work. One of our constituents, uh, Michelle Kwok, who lives over in WA, Michelle in Jundalup City Council area in Western Australia got very incensed when one day at a, um, at a an exercise class somebody sprayed the park outside and they could smell the Roundup coming into their classroom. And so Michelle got very, very active indeed. Over the last couple of months, she's collected 1,300 signatures. She's done it in a very savvy way. She went out and talked to dog walkers who find that their animals are often quite ill after they've gone into areas where, unbeknown to them, Roundup has been sprayed. And, of course, the animals lick the plants and the ground and are just generally rolling around in it. The other group, of course, was the... Um, the parents of the primary school kids who don't want Roundup sprayed around their school grounds. Last week, um, Michelle gave a presentation to her local council. With a bit of luck, that will hit the council where it hurts and get them to rethink very seriously what they're doing about their use of Roundup. Incidentally, on the same night, one of our other constituents, Shirley Collins, was using the um, matters of public interest time at her council at the city of Subiaco, also in WA, to have her say about Roundup as well. So it takes a little while. Uh, the wheels of the bureaucracy within councils turn rather slowly, but the West Australian Local Governance Association had a major event in February of this year. A lot of councils attended, and they all did their discuss weed management, what the uh, safe and non-Roundup alternatives are, so I think in WA at least, things are moving forward quite well. There's a group down in Esperance, for instance, which is in the south of the state, which has been quite active, and others around the place as well. In other states as well, we see that people are gradually moving. And if people are interested, any listeners might be interested, uh, you're very welcome to download from the um, resources page of the Gene Ethics website the discussion paper and there are two petitions there as well. Just go to Resources 2019, scroll down a little way and you'll find the Glyphosate Toxic State discussion paper and the two petitions to local councils which, which um, people can either use as they are or adapt themselves. And that's the thing, isn't it, Bob, that people, citizens in local councils, have never been asked if they want these poisons to be sprayed right up to their houses virtually in some instances. That's right. It, it, it has been slow. I mean, as a result of the decision of the UN in 2015, some councils 
make a move. And so you've got, for instance, the Yarra Council using uh, alternative weed steaming and other methods in sensitive areas like parks, around schools and kinders and so on. And also citizens on a street can band together and can say to council, hang on a minute, we don't want that done down our street. And some people are doing that. There are options, and as a result, the Yarra Council now has a contract for weed steaming. They say that it only costs something like a dollar per resident per annum, which is a very affordable price. We're seeing that, um, for instance, the Cardinia Shire, which is where I live, now has a discussion paper, had a meeting of council officials a couple of weeks ago, and they're examining their options as well. So it's just a matter of hitting the right button, getting things rolling, and then, given time, council will gradually start to take notice and start to think about what its other options are. Because I think they realise that with those judgments in the USA and also a case filed by a gardener here in Melbourne about his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, that they're all very exposed. But this is not something that they're able to easily either wriggle out of or be um, insured against. If some of their workers, for instance, who are most, the most exposed, became ill and chose to sue, then we know that it could potentially cost a council certainly millions, if not tens of millions of dollars uh, as a settlement for um, not warning them properly that uh, Roundup is a carcinogen. Let's finish, Bob, with the humble banana. What would they like to do with the banana? Oh, well, this is one to send you bananas, really. Uh, The Cavendish banana, of course, is the dominant commercial variety of banana in the world, except in those communities in Africa, for instance, where banana is a staple and they use the local varieties, many of which are actually better than the Cavendish. But anyway, if you like tasteless bananas, for something like 20 years they've been saying, oh, the banana, the poor banana, it's got this um, viral infection and it's fungus uh, is going to wipe it out and other various claims have been made. Jim Dale, who works out of Queensland University of Technology, has been working on bananas for quite a while, attempting to uh, get varieties of bananas that will resist this disease and also put vitamin A into bananas so that they could be sold into those communities around the world that um, in some cases suffer from vitamin A deficiency. Though that's a whole other story about having balanced diets and uh, which people are entitled to have, not some poor staple that's uh, been tweaked using genetic engineering. In any event, Jim and some of his colleagues have written to Nature magazine and their letter was published just last week. Incidentally to the story, James said to, in, in his letter that as well as the main research that they're doing, they will also, quote, attempt to make biotech bananas more palatable to regulators. Now, this is a little coded sentence, which means that uh, they are waiting for the federal government to deregulate many of the genetic manipulation techniques, which is the huge debate that we're engaged in at the moment. The federal government, even though these techniques have only been invented in 2012 and have no history of safe use, are saying, oh, no, they're safe, 
scientists have told us they're safe. Really, they're no different from traditional breeding. And in future, we won't require our regulators to, uh, to even take a look at them or be notified of them. Jim here is sending out the message when the law changes and SCOMO deregulates um, the CRISPR techniques and the plants, animals and microorganisms that would be then coming into the production systems and into the food supply without any notice to anybody at all, then we'll conveniently attempt to make biotech bananas which are more palatable to the regulators, that's to say which are deregulated. We won't have to take them to the regulators, we won't have to worry about public opinion and we can just put them out there, no worries mate. This is what I think a lot of scientists are thinking and why the Academy, Australian Academies of Science has been so stridently advocating deregulation to the federal government. They see the gene jockeys all flocking to the deregulated methods and not having to have them regulated at all. But of course in the background are all those big GM seed companies that I mentioned now owning the vast majority of the commercial seeds worldwide. They are also they're waiting to come flooding into the market with uh, plants, animals and microorganisms which will simply come under the regulator's radar, won't be acknowledged as being genetically manipulated, impose all their costs, hazards and risks on the community at large until some disaster happens and we'll have to in think about regulating them. We're not being well served by ScoMo's government and this is still an argument because the Greens have a disallowance motion in the Senate, uh, but we need the ALP uh, on side. And at the moment, they're saying uh, we're on ScoMo's side on this. We think uh, that uh, the assurance of the Academy of Science is good enough for us. CropLife have been talking to us, and we think they're credible too. This is the global network of public relations for the... Uh, agrochemical and crop seed industries, we're just going to let them go through to the keeper. So if people are still keen to do something about that between now and uh, the end of October, if they could go to the uh, cyber action alerts, that would be great. They can find them on the web. Just Google, hey Chris, keep regulating CRISPR. That's to say Chris Bowen, who's currently the Shadow Health Minister, uh, there's a petition there if people can write a letter to a short few notes to uh, Chris Bowen. It's all well explained. And if they want to write to their own MP and their state senators, uh, that's possible too. And the um, Google for that is keep GM animals off our farms. And with a bit of luck, on November the 13th, when the uh, Greens disallowance motion comes up in the Senate, we're hoping that uh, we'll get the ALP and all the crossbenchers as well uh, to say to the government, no, we want to continue the regulation, we want precaution, and we want our food supply to be safe. Good o. Thank you, Bob. And that was Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network, and don't we all want our food to be safe? <laughs> Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle. 
a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. Kathy Kelly from Voices for Creative Nonviolence recently returned from a visit to Afghanistan to meet with peace activists. Also on the visit was a nurse, Sarah Ball. I spoke with Sarah at her home and began by asking her about her previous work in the anti-war peace area. You know what, it was actually relatively recently for me. I've only been interested in political things for the last three years or so. About seven years ago, I started volunteering. I started volunteering with the Missionaries of Charity, and then I found out about the Catholic Worker then I kept volunteering, and I get it, kept getting deeper and deeper into relationships, relationships with people who were involved with the peace movement one way or another, and eventually I was in Chicago working with a Sukasa Catholic worker that helps women and children from South America who are, um, have been affected by domestic violence. And I met a woman named Rosalie Riepel who said, oh, you should talk to Kathy Kelly and Voices. And I said, who are they? This was about three years ago, so... I called them up, and they invited me over, and I've been keeping going over ever since. Um, I've been living myself at Voices for about a year and a half now. About two years ago, I went on my first trip to Afghanistan. As part of the Voices, uh, as part of the Voices team, I went to Iran last spring as part of the Code Pink delegation. So I've been getting involved more and more in the last couple of years and trying to catch up on all the uh, things happening around the world that I, that I missed when I really honestly wasn't aware. Let's start with Iran, the delegation, the Code Pink delegation. What was it like for you? I was coming in with a lot of preconceptions based on my previous trip to Afghanistan uh, about a year before that happened. I, I'd done a bit of traveling in the Middle East, so I was going in with all this information I had learned from other countries in the Middle East, and it honestly turned out quite different than I expected. I tried to do a lot of reading about Iran uh, before. Uh, me and the other person born was Sean, read a whole bunch of books. So we knew about a bit of the history and how the U.S. has interfered in the region and all of that. But I was absolutely not prepared for the level of openness in, in gender relations, I suppose I'll say. And of course, we were in Tehran, and I'm sure it's quite different in the villages. But even though women there are required to wear headscarves, they could be quite a bit freer about it than they were in Afghanistan. And I just found that they went around and did everything and can hold almost every job that they wanted and, and seemed to be quite comfortable speaking to men, and many people seemed quite comfortable, with some exceptions, um, speaking about the government. So we did have a lot of very interesting conversations with the people there. Can you talk a bit more about those conversations? <laughs> they were very various. Uh, one of the places where there were the most conversations was in the city of Isfahan, the other uh, city that we visited which is one of the historic cities of Iran with a very long history, and I don't know much about architecture, but mosques dating from, you know, many hundreds of years ago. And in the bazaar there, which is just, I can't tell you how beautiful it was, the bazaar sits surrounding two mosques. The shopkeepers in the bazaar were just really easy to talk to. I, I set off from the group at one point and walked around the bazaar, which is quite big, just, 
looking for conversations to see what I could see. And I had people approach me and say, oh, you know, where are you from? Are you from America? Because, you know, even though I was wearing a headscarf, not too difficult to tell, I suppose. And I was invited out for coffee. And uh, people very obviously wanted to get into conversations about politics and world affairs. And they asked my opinions, and they very frankly told me theirs. We did find somebody who liked Trump, curiously enough, uh, that wasn't that wasn't usual. We found a lot of people who were very irritated by the sanctions and told us stories about how their family members and friends had been affected by medicines not getting in. And people were just astoundingly frank, for the most part. There were 28 of you on this delegation. What was the main foci? I think the main focus was to find out about how the sanctions were affecting people. Um, we did get to listen to the Foreign Minister Javad Zarif speak, and we got to sit in on Parliament to speak to some of the women parliamentarians. I think there are something like, there are about 15 women parliamentarians out of, I'm going to make a wild guess, something like a, a couple hundred. We got to do quite a, a lot of meetings with women who were in business there, we got to we got to see the university and talk to some of the university students who were studying Middle Eastern studies. And I did um, get emails uh, from a couple of them, and we've in touch. So people from all over the spectrum, people from all walks of life, who were very interested in talking with us and forthright. They were concerned that things could get a lot worse? Yes. People were quite worried about what could happen between the U.S. and Iran. And, of course, now we know in the past few weeks we have even more reason to be worried. But, yes, there were, there were concerns about that. But I will say that one of the qualities of Iranians that I learned about in the reading I had done, and which I did definitely find out when I was there, is that Iranians are a very proud and resilient people. One of the members of our delegation who is a, a professor of, uh, I think, political science in the Middle East or something like that, mentioned that there was a poll done among most of the nations of the world to try to find out who was the most patriotic and had the biggest love of their country. Most of the countries in the world, it was Iran. And I think the reason that's important is that the U.S., who really is mostly often concerned with making other nations bow down to it, won't get very far by trying to browbeat Iran. It's really the completely wrong tactic, because Iranians will, as they should, take it as a condescension as, and as an offense. And especially recently, with President Trump trying to ramp up the sanctions, um, that really will just make the Iranian people be more offended and saying, well, bring up the sanctions, you know, we'll show you. So, especially regarding the Iranian people, U.S. policy has not been a helpful strategy in any way whatsoever. The Iranians have a very good sense of their own importance in the region, of their very rich history, of all the different ethnicities and religions that really do form a part of Iranian culture. One example is that many Iranians love poetry, and they have lots of Iranian poetry memorized. And when we were visiting one of the mosques in Isfahan, a lot of the Iranians 
would write up the poems as kind of like graffiti in the mosques, but it wasn't a, a bad thing to do. It was accepted. So when you walked to the mosque, there was all this Iranian poetry that people knew by heart. So people know their own culture and they value it. Were you able to get out outside the main cities? We weren't very much, which was uh, which was really too bad. But I mean, it makes sense. The Iranians were understandably a bit nervous about having us in, as they should have been, because of the you know ways that the U.S. has interfered in their country and politics, beginning with the 1953 overthrow of Mossadegh. So we. Our visit was a bit curtailed, and we did have, you know, people watching it to make sure that we just couldn't wander off and talk to anyone, even though quite a few of us did get to in Isfahan. So we didn't really get long enough to go more into the villages or the small towns. So I would absolutely love to get a chance to go back there and see many of the villages. Incidentally, one, uh, one of the things that I love is Iranian film. Iranians have one of the greatest film industries in the world, and I've watched quite a number of Iranian movies about life in the villages, <laughs> so I was really hoping to go in, hopefully sometime, hopefully sometime. Was the one particular thing that you brought back with you from that visit, or were there were so many? Uh, I think the, the thing that I brought back, really the, the richness of the conversations that I had with people one of the friends that I was able to make was a young woman who loved English literature, and she told me that she never gets a chance to talk about English literature because, you know, most people in every culture don't like to read long novels, but also because it was English literature. So we talked about Little March and, uh, you know, Jane Austen and Dickens and Russian literature as well. People were extraordinarily friendly, and I, I really value the people that I met over there. And I think it's really important now to continue friendships with other cultures and in other countries, because now, especially when people are divided and when there's so much, uh, so many lies being spread, it's really important to, relationships are one of the most important things. And I'd say the same about my travels in Afghanistan. Let's talk about Afghanistan. As you said, you've been there, you were there two years ago. How do you compare your latest visit to the first visit? I found that people seemed, and of course this is a very superficial observation, in, in the sense that somebody you know, coming for a week, two years, and then a week now wouldn't quite be able to tell. But I found that people seemed a bit more tense and a bit more worried about how things might turn out. My two visits to Afghanistan are always marked by conversation, conversation, and conversation, because in Afghanistan, everyone sits around, sits in rooms together and outside together and drinks green tea and talks, and talks very seriously about ideas and about the country and with the people I was with, nonviolence. And of course, so all of that was the same two years ago and for this trip that I took a couple of weeks ago. But I just found that more people were being killed by Taliban, by U.S. bombings, drone bombings that often killed many civilians. And that they're starting to be warlords who are rising up to, you know, 
to confront the Taliban, which puts the country at some danger of civil war, and families in some of the provinces overrun by the Taliban are starting to be torn apart because, you know, you have a father who is anti-Taliban and a son who, you know, is for the Taliban because somebody told me um, the Taliban says to young men, you know, come with us, we'll give you a gun and a motorcycle, and, you know, what 19-year-old young man wouldn't be tempted by that? So things have gotten a, a little bit more worrisome in a lot of ways, and the water situation, which was drastic two years ago, has gotten worse. So if you live in a small village in Afghanistan, the streams, the rivers have gotten smaller, the wells have to be dug deeper. So there are a lot of reasons for worry on every side, and it just seems, from what I could tell and from what people told me, that things have gotten a little bit worse all the way around. Especially because, as I heard, in the last year there were many more killings of civilians than there had been in previous years. Why that is, I'm not exactly sure. And that's part one of a longer interview that I recorded with Sarah Ball, peace activist from America. And on the program next week, we'll hear Sarah speak more about her visit to Afghanistan outside the city of Kabul. The world is watching from the UN to West Papua. The human rights violation by the Indonesian armed forces has been exposed. I'm speaking once again to Ronnie Kareni, representing the United Liberation Movement for West Papua. Ronnie, begin with a meeting of the UN General Assembly, the speech by the Vanuatu PM. What did he tell that meeting? So in September, the United Nations General Assembly has proceeded and at least three countries that have came out from the Pacific echoed the human rights situation in West Papua as well as the right to self-determination. And particularly Vanuatu, uh, the Prime Minister, Mr. Salwai, echoed the need for the region, especially calling out Australia to step up on West Papua, as well as condemning the human rights situation under the current President Jokowi's watch, by which there is no solution to the conflict in Duga, which is already 10 months, as well as recent unrest since mid-August. And so it also calls on colonization in the Pacific. It's not over until other non-self-governing territories and other colonies are free from this issue of colonization in the Pacific. Now, we're getting a fair bit of information through from Indonesia about what's happening in West Papua, and that is not quite the same as the story that you're getting from West Papuans on the ground. Yes, so on the 23rd of September, uh, two Peaceful actions were organized, one in Jayapura, by the Papuan students, university students, who've exodus back from parts of Indonesia back to Papua because of the ongoing threats and intimidation that they faced and those discrimination slurs and everything. So at least on record, 2,000 students have already came back into Papua. So they expressed their concerns and their right to education to the chancellor, of Chandrawasi University in Jayapura. Meanwhile, another event was 
are also organized up in Wamena, Central Highlands, whereby the information on the ground that came up is that there was a racial slur that was used by a female teacher to a Papuan student calling her during that moment that she was, it was a reading session, and this Papuan student, a grade three, did not pronounce the words correctly and loud enough for everyone to hear, and so the teacher yelled at her, saying the words that are inappropriate, which with the incident in Surabaya, it's fresh in everyone's mind. And so that sparks this action on Monday as well, on the 23rd of September. What came out after both incidents is that the Indonesian troops, and as well as up until now, it's unknown groups which have not been identified by state, but they're called armed criminal groups, have been also involved in the riots in Wamena. And so straight after the incident in Wamena, after images and photos, footages emerged on Facebook and shared, within 30 minutes, the Internet, the phone access got restricted. Next minute we're hearing was the police announcing that 17 people, basically the civil society, uh, civilians, were killed. And we didn't know whether it was uh, from the transmigrants or the Papuans. But then on the next day, the chief of police, Tito Kanavien, with Wiranto, his good mate and uh, war criminal, and as well as the chief of um, the military, did a press conference and announced that at least 32 people were dead and 22 are non-Papuans. And he emphasized strongly that this is what is happening is that 22 non-Papuans, innocent lives being killed by Papuans and then categorizing the Papuans as the, the criminals, the armed criminal group. So that's what the media have been putting out, the Indonesian local media putting out. And everyone buys into the rhetoric and the agenda setting by which the state present themselves through that press conference. What has come out now in the last couple of days is that many of the transmigrants were helped by the Papuans during the riot. And even some of the testimonies from the transmigrants writing on Facebook saying that how lucky that they are alive today and writing on and sharing their experience is because of a Papuan family managed to help them, at least 10 of them, to, be, to hide inside a house or even young Papuans helping other transmigrants. And so that has been emerging now and also rebuffing the the claims that the media are saying that there's, an, there's a doctor f from transmigrant background bent alive in, the host in one of the buildings, which it wasn't true. And so these are the stories or informations that have been coming out. One would say hoax or fake news that came out straight after the 23rd of September. Up until now, on the weekend, The Guardian have have really balanced the story a bit to hear from those who are eyewitness to what's happening, and especially at the General Hospital in Wamena, whereby bodies of Papuan students lying in there with injury. And up until Friday last week, 
no medical access because of the power outage, many of them cannot be treated. So those with bullet wounds still suffering and lying there. So families have come to take their children away and use traditional methods to remove the bullet wounds. Meanwhile, there's reports of at least over 3,500 trans migrants evacuated from uh, Wamena to Jayapura, and some have already sent back all the way to where they came from, like to Makassar and other islands and in Surabaya. And so yesterday, uh, Indonesian media have confirmed many people have already arriving in their villages in those Adalta archipelago. Why do you believe they've been shifted? There is an agenda that the state is pushing. One is to create this as a social conflict uh, where the, it's perpetuating these radical Islamic groups because now there has been already information or news emerging that they are rec- a call out for recruitment as well as reinforcement of the FBI or the Islamic Defenders Front to be recruited, trained, and be sent to Papua. So it's creating that social issue. But at the same time, it's an operation. It's a, it's a cover-up operation by state. And we're seeing the, the scenarios of what happened in Istimo. And so this is actually now the presence of Detachment 88, special elite forces that are being trained and funded by the Australian taxpayers' money. Um, they are now also on the hand of some of the key militia groups who were active during the Istimo crisis. And their presence already in, in West Papua. And so this is the lead for many to know if what's really who's behind the riots and, and the uh, unrest is now to look into the special elite forces, um, the Kostrad, as well as the Detachment 88, because they are now fully deployed on the ground and to carry out uh, counter-insurgency and counter-terrorism efforts in, in West Papua. So there has been this shift creating a social conflict, but at the same time um, using the military means to really create this as well as um, distracting or diverge from the real issues that the West Papuans have been calling for, which is to exercise their political rights to freedom of assembly and their right to self-determination, which is pretty much many have been calling for, especially through a UN process of a, a democratic solution through referendum. You're talking about radical Islamic groups. I can remember many, many years ago reports that those groups were active in West Papua. Is that correct? That's correct. That's when, after the Istimo case, and many of them have to fled Istimo into West Timor, but also some were already sent to Papua. So they've been breeding all these years. And so now, since the uprising in West Papua in mid-August, there are cases of these unknown groups that comes into the peaceful march, and then start throwing stones and then create this chaos. And so in Fakfak, for example, on the 21st of August, when the civilians, they organized a peaceful protest, 
there was this group where came in and start shooting and they were with their machetes and guns and so they were part of this um the attackers and create this whole chaos whereby one 15 year old boy was bayoneted right through his stomach that is one incident that needs like everyone felt so traumatized and it was evident of evidence of the militia groups are uh, being used to counter the peaceful protest and then what happened in Jayapura on the 28th and 29th of August also demonstrated the, that with a peaceful gathering was like 500 meters away from where the burning of buildings government buildings and no one couldn't even identify even the police have not even identified that and so with the with the September incident in Wamena that clearly underlines that there is which the the president Jokowi himself has and the police have come out and and confirmed that it's not the Papuans that are creating this chaos it, there is an a third element that groups that are now involved, but they have categorized it as the armed um, criminal groups. What's the situation with access to internet and phone at the moment? In terms of access to internet and phones, to certain locations it's very difficult. Um, Even messages sent, the people on the ground will not receive it until later, like several hours. But like in Wamena, it has been like if there is an action that is planned, for example, yesterday there was an action planned in Merauke, south in um, Papua. And it was very difficult to com- contact right to the sources on the ground or those who are on the ground. The information may on the local message, yes, they can, but it has to be used uh, signal application or other means to send information to Jayapura, and then from Jayapura they can send it out. So that it was very difficult yesterday to really follow the action in Morocco yesterday. Just like in Wamena, um, over a week the state restricted any communication in or communication out, and that has been the case since um, August. And so it is very uh, frustrating. And especially when information is not coming out or going in to just to find out what's the situation on the ground. In terms of they have different means of um, soft applications that are used, like, for example, WhatsApp. Um, It's been um, also somewhat cracked and the state could easily know how this information are being disseminated from who to who, like, that's also, they've infiltrated um, through text messages and WhatsApp messages or even phone calls. So very difficult to really communicate with each other on the ground, but also from inside out uh, to other network outside. And on top of that, they're using this, what they, um, the social media to counter any information that they, that are put out there to share as real events are unfolding and trying to counter it with this network of these new pages and Facebook uh, names on Twitter as well as on Facebook and attacking the even the Australian media and anyone who just 
puts information on the social media on West Papua. Is, in a sense, West Papua in lockdown, meaning that activists from outside, whether they're West Papuans or not, cannot enter? Absolutely. West Papua is in a lockdown, and since mid-August, I did declare it as this is a martial, undeclared martial law already being enforced when a lot of those uprising, the, the civil um, resistance, were especially with the information lockdown as well as um, those actions are restricted, you can't march and all this. And then when the announcement of both the chief of police and chief of army will establish their office in in West Papua indefinitely to make sure the situation is conducive, that in itself sends or signals that West Papua is in a lockdown and it is a also a kind of like a militarized zone that now it's the military and police are in control and in charge. So up until now, that is the, the case. Just wondering if you've got any contact at all with the Australian government. We have Maurice Payne reacting a week or so ago saying, well, we have to have restraint on both sides. Well, one side's got all the weapons they need and the other's got sticks and stones. Have you made any contact at all since then? Yes. Uh, from the leadership, there has been already contacts and updates on the um, individual MPs, as well as various different parties here in Australia. There has been response from the Greens party, as well as from the Labour. Penny Wong has also expressed the this, this situation, especially on human rights. But then at the end of the day, both or like in terms of Australian position on the West Papua, um, they are being silenced on the human rights because of the Lombok Treaty, which is about respecting Indonesia's territorial integrity and to increase their security cooperation. So this is one thing that has been really a, 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 a scenario whereby Australian government, especially uh, any successive government at the end of the day, now they have to look and revisit this Lombok Treaty and include that there needs to be a third party or third state responsibility in cases of human rights atrocities orchestrated by the state. And in the case of Indonesia, this Lombok Treaty needs to be looked again and revisited to include this um, third state responsibility. Because at the end of the day, Australia cannot complicit and also cannot overlook what lessons been learned from the Istimo case. How do you believe this situation in West Papua is being reported in other countries in the region? We have Vanuatu, of course, and a couple of the island states in the Pacific. What about wider? Are there West Papuans in countries where they're able to push this issue? Yes, there has been um, Papuans in other countries, especially in the U.S. I, I know the, the West Papuan uh, leader, Herman Wangai, did appear on Democracy Now! and, and talk about the situation, as well as in, in Europe, in the Netherlands, um, Papuans there, they appeared on the mainstream television and also update the situation. And within within that, 
they have the role of media, like in the mainstream, the CNN, Al Jazeera, as well as SBS and ABC are, are kind of coming out and really shining a light. But it's just that many are not willing to really ask the deeper question of the the underlying conflict that continues to happen in West Papua, by which the outcome is human rights abuses and this escalation of violence. And so that is something that there hasn't been the deeper conversation around that. It must be very distressing for the West Papuans here in Australia. You're so, so close, yet you're so far away. And I would imagine that all of you have still got families in West Papua. Yes, it is um, emotionally draining at times and frustrating. Um, and knowing that families are always on a, on lookout to just knowing that, okay, what they're going to do next or just having that contingency plans for escaping if uh, and when things get out of control. It's a constant battle of emotion, but at the same time it's also... Uh, consolidating those um, emotions into a positive outcome whereby the, the, the resistance must still be alive. This, the nonviolence approach to this, this resistance as well as um, consolidating the efforts. And so now um, in the last 24 hours, what we're hearing is Jokowi is offering to meet with the pro-independence leaders, especially through the United Liberation Movement for West Papua and the National Committee, which they are the mass um, grassroots organization in West Papua, and to be able to meet. So we are coming into that phase, but it comes with a process and a lot of things needs to be established first prior to any meeting with Jokowi, but he's already uh, provided an opportunity there, so now it's up to the the leaders to see it and how they want to take on this um, offer. And we have to reiterate all the time, Ronnie, that it all goes back to the act of no choice. Absolutely. That is the, the fundamental, the core underlying um, cause of the conflict that Papuans continues to fight and continues to face the brutality of the state and so that what happened in the 60s is something that is, needs to be reviewed revisited on legal political grounds but at the same time it has to be under the UN international law not Indonesia's jurisdiction uh, how we are planning that this happens is firstly with the regional leaders including Australia and New Zealand have recognized the, co- the need for a visit of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. And that is the first step, that we need this visit to be done immediately. So there will be a recommendations coming out from that. And based on that, they will also identify the root cause of the conflict. And so this is where the next step towards a resolution motioned by a sponsored state from the UN member state to sponsor the case of West Papua, whether if it requires an advisory opinion within the ICC, so be it. So the legal status of West Papua is clear to look back on how 
Indonesia took over West Papua. And on political grounds, it is also that West Papuans have never exercised their right to self-determination. And so it presents an opportunity that if that's the case, then a democratic solution through a UN mechanism, a referendum, can be carried out so Papuans can exercise their, their right. Is there anything else you'd like to say, Ronnie? So in all of this that is happening in West Papua right now and the push for West Papua to be released back to the decolonization committee, it is now also important that the voice of individuals, the voice of the people and the grassroots is important to support the voice of the West Papuans in West Papua as well as diaspora here and in Australia and anywhere else because at the end, at the end it helps to give the hope and it also strengthens the Papuans. So all I'm saying is um, it's, about, it's time now for the voice of the people, um, the voice of dissent to come out and stand with the people of West Papua and apply the upward pressure to the governments here, especially in Australia, and to the regional leaders through the Pacific Island Forum, and as well as to various UN agencies to really push for that visit of the UN High Commissioner to visit West Papua. Thank you, Ronnie. Thank you, Jan. And that, of course, was Ronnie Karini, West Papuan, now living in Australia, and from West Papua to the Andes with Sasha Gillies-Lakakis. The Andes were once home to some of the oldest civilizations in the Americas, and in spite of the often inhospitable conditions prevalent in the immense mountain range, a diverse array of indigenous cultures not only survived, but thrived in this region. Now the Andes Mountains covers a truly enormous territory and can be found spread across seven different countries. Peru, Bolivia, Ecuador, Colombia, Chile, Argentina and Venezuela. However, the vast majority of indigenous and Andean populations, as well as the most comprehensively studied histories of the region, focus on Peru and Bolivia. So these two countries will be the focus of our special for today. Let us begin with a glimpse into the fascinating and strikingly advanced cultures of the Andes region that, like their brothers and sisters in Central America and the Amazon, had their lives irrevocably changed by the arrival of the Europeans. We will begin with the Norte Chico civilization, also known as the Caral, which inhabited the northern desert regions of Peru in the earliest days of human civilization in the Americas, from 3200 BCE. This makes it the oldest civilization in Latin America. Recognized as a cradle of civilization that birthed several other cultures, the Caral's disappearance is still a mystery to archaeologists and historians, and the remnants of their society can be found in Peru's Supe Valley, where ancient pyramids, in some ways reminiscent of those of ancient Egypt, stand amidst the desolate environment. Next came the Nazca and Moche civilizations, which coexisted at around the same time, between 100 and 800 CE. Both these indigenous groups were renowned for their beautiful and complex art forms, particularly ceramics and textiles, and whilst the Nazca were consummate builders, proven by their impressive aqueducts that remain intact today, the Moche are striking for their organisation as several elite tribal states that worked in unison. 
While there were countless other indigenous societies inhabiting the Andes at this time, easily the most famous and the largest was the Inca Empire. Beginning from its heartland in Peru, the Inca Empire ended up encompassing a truly vast range, stretching up north to Ecuador, some say even southern Colombia, and extending right down through half of Chile and spreading eastward into much of Bolivia. The Inca civilization was highly developed and advanced with remarkable agricultural techniques, particularly in the highlands, as well as a powerful military and excellent road network that connected even the most far-flung reaches of the empire. And while the Incas had certainly proven themselves in many a battle against rival indigenous societies, nothing could prepare them for the Spanish invasion that was to come. In 1531, the Spaniards arrived on the Peruvian coast, led by Francisco Pizarro, a conquistador lured to South America by rumours of a fabulously wealthy kingdom, bursting with resources, and most importantly for him, bursting with gold. The kingdom in question was, of course, the Inca Empire. The Spanish could not have arrived at a better time. Inca Emperor Atahualpa was at the time engaged in a civil war with his brother, Huascar, which had left much of the nation in disarray. Pizarro, once in Cusco, the Inca capital, launched a coup d'etat against the Inca monarchy, and in their first conflict, just 168 Spaniards defeated an army of thousands of Inca warriors. Brutal fighting continued, and by just 1534, Pizarro had established a Spanish city in Cusco, and the long, terrible nightmare of colonialism in the Andes began. During the course of less than 100 years, the Spanish committed yet another horrific genocide against Latin America's indigenous population, this time in the Andes. Population levels plummeted from as many as 100 million across the region down to 12 million. The usual culprits, terrible colonial violence and disease, were responsible. The Spaniards did end up finding the wealth they had hoped for, namely in the copious mineral reserves of Peru and Bolivia. This was most famous at Potosí in Bolivia, where countless indigenous people from the Andes were sent as slaves to work in absolutely horrific conditions in the silver mines there. The conquistadors and Catholic Church, in typical fashion, carved up the region, claiming vast tracts of land for themselves and forcing Andean peoples to work the land for them as slaves. As was the norm elsewhere in Latin America, the indigenous people of the Andes very quickly became the poorest, most destitute inhabitants of Latin America, matched only by the African slaves that later began arriving on the continent. However, the people of the Andes did not go quietly, and indeed resistance to Spanish colonial authority was more prevalent here than in other parts of Latin America. This can be in part attributed to the fact that Andean cultures, particularly those of the Quechua and Aymara language groups, retained a greater cultural cohesion than other indigenous groups attacked by the Spanish. For example, in 1781, indigenous freedom fighter Tupac Catari led a siege of La Paz, capital of the Bolivian colony. He was tragically betrayed and ended up being mutilated, drawn and quartered by the Spanish. By 1809, however, Bolivian nationalists, many of them indigenous, began a mass uprising against the Spanish, joining similar movements such as that of Simon Bolivar in Venezuela, as well as independence fighters in Peru and Colombia, to end Spanish rule once and for all. By 1825, this was achieved, and all Latin American states, except Cuba, Puerto Rico and Uruguay, did in fact gain independence. Like elsewhere, independence by no means signalled freedom and sovereignty for Andean indigenous cultures. The Creole, or white elite, in many of these countries simply grabbed power and established their own oligarchies. 
This was most contradictory in Peru and Bolivia, where the vast majority of the population was indigenous, yet ruled by a small white clique. Violence against indigenous remnants in the Andes continued as the new states sought to take their land and exploit it for commercial profit. By the 20th century, conditions were ripe for revolution and uprising. Interestingly, at different points throughout this period, both Peru and Bolivia, eventually, saw governments rise that did explicitly look to improve conditions for indigenous people in the two countries. The first came in 1952, when the Bolivian National Revolution took place, with many of its members being part or full-blooded indigenous Bolivians, though the leaders of the movement largely weren't, it's important to note. This movement successfully rose up against the mining oligarchy in Bolivia, putting in place several radical reforms, including sweeping land reform, universal suffrage for indigenous people, nationalisation of Bolivia's largest mines, and rural education policies. The Bolivian National Revolution, however, was only tolerated up to a point. In 1964, the military overthrew the revolutionary government, which saw the beginning of 20 years of brutal military rule in Bolivia. First under René Torres and then the notorious Hugo Banza, the Bolivian military dictatorship ruled with an iron fist, executing thousands of leftists and indigenous people, and at one point considered giving indigenous land to white South African immigrants in a bid to de-indigenise Bolivia. As per the norm, the US provided extensive aid to the right-wing regime and aided their brutal rise to power with military planes and communication technologies during the coup itself. Peru experienced a similar situation between 1968 and 1975, when left-wing military leader Velasco took power in the country. He made Peru the first country in the Americas to recognise an indigenous language as official, in this case Quechua. Additionally, he mandated bilingual education in Peruvian schools and enacted the second largest agrarian reform in Latin America's history, second only to the Cuban Revolution. This saw 300,000 families, many of them indigenous, get access to land that was, after all, rightfully theirs. By 1975, US-backed right-wing generals were ready to launch a coup against Velasco, which was successful. Many of his reforms that benefited indigenous people were subsequently dismantled. Upon his death, just two years later in 1977, Velasco's body was carried around Lima for six hours in veneration by campesinos, many of them indigenous. The 1980s and 1990s saw the dominance of right-wing governments in the Andean countries that continued to persecute indigenous people. In Peru, this was personified by the ruthless Fujimori dictatorship of the 1990s, who, in his war against the Shining Path guerrillas, sanctioned the murder of thousands of indigenous people, even those just suspected of supporting the leftists. Another more recent revelation from that dark period of Peru's history was Fujimori's forced sterilisation campaign targeted against indigenous women in the 1990s, where thousands lost the ability to have children and had their bodies violated in the most terrible ways, all in a twisted attempt to breed out the indigenous people of Peru, a sort of terrible eugenics. It should be noted that once again the United States facilitated Fujimori's brutal campaign and provided much of the funding to his regime. Bolivia finally overthrew the shackles of neoliberal capitalism in the early 2000s when well-organised autonomous indigenous groups led two successful uprisings against the turbo-capitalist US-backed Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada a water war against the privatisation of this essential resource and a gas war against foreign ownership of Bolivia's resources saw the government kill almost 100 indigenous people, leaving many more hundreds wounded. 
Losada promptly fled Bolivia on a helicopter heading for Miami when he could no longer control the Bolivian people. His successor, Carlos Mesa, also a neoliberal racist thug, was forced to resign after nationwide strikes, roadblocks and mass protests rocked the country. The popular movement towards socialism was swept to power and Evo Morales, Bolivia's first indigenous president, assumed power in the country. He has implemented some of the most progressive reforms for indigenous people anywhere in the world, including universal health care, protection of indigenous customs and practices, as well as facilitating the participation of indigenous women in politics, something that had been previously unheard of. The indigenous people of the Andes have not given up their struggle for land, sovereignty and social justice. Even after genocide, years of violence and an untold number of insurrections and reactions, the Andes continues to surprise, inspire and give hope to the continent. And though the struggle is far from over, Bolivia's current government and continued social mobilisation in Peru are promising signs indeed. And many thanks to Sasha Gillies-Lakakis from the Latin American Information program on Sunday morning at 10.30 and we'll be hearing more about Sasha on the program. That's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4. Bye for now.